0: Scrolling through his phone, he just cracked open a tall boy beer. No, oh, okay. that's not that okay. Tall. It's, a it's not tall. It's a seltzer. It's a seltzer. He's got his headphones on. He looks. He's, I wrote an intro, he and I he guess lost it. his intro. Hold on.
1: You know what it is? I wrote. You're gonna have One to leave time. the room to go yeah, get don't it. Worry. Where is it? You can cut. It's why, why is not it all in the cloud? It's, it's saved it as a draft instead of sending. All right. Here he is. All right, I'm just gonna queue up some clips here. All right, Chris, whenever you're ready. Uh, welcome everybody to another episode of Fullcasting Crew. Wow. We're
0: going to do it right. All right, you're right. I mean, I didn't notice the difference that it made. but Me neither. I don't even know if this does anything. Just (laughs) to psychological, yeah. For the viewer, listener, it's like a black foam separator between Chris and I. In a different context, this would be garbage. You ever see the uh, Claire Danes uh, cow whisperer story on HBO? About the autistic woman who designed slaughterhouses. Yes. Yeah. Um, No, I haven't seen it, but I... One of the innovations she had was that they like to be sort of like pressed in. Yeah, it makes them feel relaxed. Right. So I guess the innovation was they they their heads were held for a moment prior yeah. to a gigantic bolt being shot through their forehead.
1: Right. Exactly. So that there was no adrenaline released, which toughens up the meat. Uh, Here it comes. Welcome to another episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, minute forty five. Minute forty five. <laughs> in try take two. Welcome to another episode of Full Cast and Crew, a podcast that sees a film and the immediate connection is electric. The hosts see a film in the way that film always hoped it would be seen, and the film, by sharing its innermost self in the most intimate manner possible via the Full Cast and Crew section of its IMDb page, draws forth long-forgotten parts of the host's innermost selves via strange coincidences, unlikely connections, and surprise appearances. And sure, we might not love the film, and the film might not love us, but here, in this moment, drunk on the giddy cocktail of hope and fear, anything is possible. And shouldn't that be enough?
0: I like it. I mean, that's sort of a mournful, sort of, uh,
1: elegiac? Uh, is that it's the word? sort of a romantic mood. A it's romantic like, hey, you mood. Know, uh, feeling a little... Ships passing in the night, kind of thing. In other words... It's Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what Friday Who knows might what bring? what could happen?
0: Well, Chris, before we get to this week's movie, which is the favorite, I think we're both excited to talk about this Very movie. Very much so. Um, let's do a little listener feedback. As always, listeners can feel free to reach out with esoteric questions, requests for life advice, ruminations on imponderable mysteries, or intrusively personal questions about either Chris or myself, but mostly and preferably about Chris. You can search Full Cast and Crew on any social media account other than Google Plus. Even MySpace. And you'll find us, or you can email the pod at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. And also follow us on Twitter, will you? Now for some comments from our devoted listeners. Chris, are you ready? Yes. Okay. First one is from Kathy, who emailed the pod. And Kathy said, did Deborah Winger
1: play in this movie? Uh, I'm going to say no. Well, still, not knowing which movie she's referring to, uh, I think I would have noticed if we had seen Deborah Winger in something. Well, you were right. Yes! <laughs> Good job. <laughs> oh my God, Jason, I've been waiting so long <laughs> to hear those words come out of your mouth. Yes, uh, Kathy
0: uh, sent the mysterious but ominously foreboding question, did Deborah Winger play in this movie? It caused me to pause for a moment and I had to ask myself, did Deborah Winger play in this movie? And then ultimately, I reached back out to Kathy again through email, the magic of email. And I said, hey, Kathy, thanks for listening. Not sure which movie you're referring to. Although I had sussed out by this point where ah. Kathy was coming from. I realized that Kathy must have listened to our Saturday Night Fever podcast. Which oh. is episode one of Full Cast and yes. Crew. And I think she was conflating Saturday Night Fever with Urban Cowboy. Which did? Ha- hey, that's some good detective work. So, but I didn't want to email Kathy with like that guy <laughs> no from Canada who, who Facebooked us yeah, about lazlo Mal- Horvath. Laszlo is Horvath. Is that- <laughs> I didn't want to go all up. Laszlo Horvath on Kathy. <laughs> so I I merely wrote her politely and said, "Hey, Kathy, thank you so much for listening." Um, not sure which movie you're referring to, and she said, "Saturday Night Fever," and I said, "Oh, close." Uh, Deborah Winger starred alongside John Travolta in *Urban Cowboy* just a couple of years after *Saturday Night Fever*, which *Urban Cowboy* uh, is a fantastic movie that I'm a big fan of. Yes, and I remember we mentioned it actually. We were doing on uh, *Saturday
1: Night Fever* by, by John Wonder Travolta. Girl.
0: So anyway, that was from Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, we have another comment from the Facebook page. Stacy writes, "Quote: I love this podcast, even when I haven't seen the movie." That is high praise. Well. Hold your horses, because then in parentheses, she says, but I'll surmise that I've seen at least a few, in quotes, more (laughs) movies than Chris, smiley face emoji. (laughs) Thumbs up on the new Rants and Raves segment. JC, that's me, totes agree on the unfortunate turn of the State Farm commercials. I mean, geez. P.S., your awkward endings totally work. Unfortunately for Stacy, she's about to learn in a couple of hours that the awkward endings are no more because because the awesome endings era has begun. Yeah. We can't please all of the people all of the time. Yeah. So anyway, that, those are just some, some reactions from the listeners. Well, I have a follow up
1: uh, from Brad Lofgren, uh, who <laughs> had, college roommate, yeah, not college roommate, but a friend from college. college friend. Absolutely. Okay. I'd reached out and we got into um, an a argument. World dis- no, no. <laughs> <laughs> for the viewers yeah, he that you g- went straight to notes. I was like, Hey dude, it's been published
0: for the viewers who don't follow the full cast and crew lifestyle uh, on social media. Brad Lofgren uh, sent an email to the pod, also at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail dot com. Hello, plug, and said that he was enjoying the podcast and was was wanted Chris to send him a PDF of Chris's comic book. Uh, Behemoth. Yes. And that's where
1: the story ended until... And he wrote, I actually heard the podcast and the shout out last night. Had to laugh. Jason sounded so disappointed that I wasn't just Joe Public, but rather a friend. Remind him that I listened the first time because I know you, but I've kept listening because you're entertaining. Thank you, Brad. What else? Um, I mean, then he said, I look forward to an Oscar themed podcast this winter. Uh, happy holidays, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Brad, we are going to
0: do several Oscar themed podcasts. We're going to do a couple special uh, episodes of commenting on the uh, nominations when they come out. Yeah. We plan to live tweet the award ceremonies, which is one of my personal favorite things to do. If we are not hosting, if we're not hosting, <laughs> That's true. Okay. So the Academy really, you know, I mean, my God, is this stuff that difficult to get right? I understand that the Academy has probably made up a lot of people who wouldn't know a cell phone from a jungle gym, but it seems to me that if you're going to hire someone in 2018 for a telecast seen by billions of people around the world, maybe take a scroll through the old Twitter feed of the host I make an informed choice. I agree. I'm 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 not coming down to one side or the other. I think Kevin Hart would have been a great host with his energy and sense of humor, I, I think he would have been, I think he would have done a really good job. Um, I think but he's awesome. I don't think- It's like, come on. Everyone needs to get a little more on board with how things work here in twenty eight. Yeah. You know, he um, didn't make it any easier, I think, no, with, did his, not with his response. Yeah. There's a blueprint now. If you screw up, this is how you apologize. And if you follow this blueprint, apparently all is forgiven and you can sort of move on depending on what the transgression is. Sure. In this- in this type of transgression where there were some homophobic tweets, um, not only did he not apologize, he I saw a couple art- I saw one article on Variety that sort of said, like, you can't lie shirtless in bed in your, in your first apology video. I just thought how hilarious it was <laughs> that people have – there are articles written by public relations experts that have to mention don't shoot your first attempt at an
1: apology while lying shirtless in bed. Yeah. This will turn off a lot of listeners. I'm currently reading a book. Really? Yeah, it's a book called uh, "Amusing Ourselves to Death." Oh, sure. That came out in '85, and it was about television. But I'd heard a lot of people talking recently about how both with the current administration and internet culture. And I have to say, I'm I am ambivalent about it because about I the book or about, about the book about because I, a lot of about a lot of what it's saying I get and I understand and I think is right. There is no end to the dumbness of this story between the academy not doing their due diligence between him. Uh, doing an apology video. <laughs> not apology, apology. Not apology, apology. Uh, to uh, the false equivalencies that I think it was Nick Cannon uh being like, hey, what are you giving this guy grief about? All oh, right, when- all these white ladies said this stuff. Right. <laughs> and yet at the same time, there is something inherently a little like, oh, you kids with your internet these days. and I, And I don't like that I feel that <laughs> a little bit, that I look at the culture and think that they should all just get off my lawn.
0: Well, look, what it comes down to for me, and this is a problem, I mean— I've gone through a transformation with the Oscars themselves over the years, which is perhaps either maturity or jaded bitterness. Let's call it maturity for the sure. benefit <laughs> of the doubt. That I'd like to. I mean, give we'll myself. know. We'll know. Anytime when I the this. word maturity is used, yes. it actually
1: means jaded bitterness. Jaded bitterness.
0: But you know, I still I love to watch. But it's a little bit more of a. oh My God, can this whole thing get over itself and its yeah. swelled sense of importance to the world? Um. Unlike other award shows, like I think the Grammys is the best award show there is simply because the entire show is musical performances. Mm -hmm. The entire show, whether you like these artists or not, is about people hitting the stage and doing the thing for which they are nominated for awards, however ridiculous the idea of this is the best and this is the worst or this came in second or this came in third is. However, with the Oscars, since we don't really have the luxury of here's
1: some acting on stage or some lighting or some directing, <laughs> even though How my great God, would that they be tried. If they, were to, if they did, like here's a scene from Bus Stop with our Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> did they try like live acting
0: on stage on the oh, Oscars? No, I missed it. So instead of that, it becomes a self congratulatory parade of self importance, and it doesn't really. It's lost a sense of humor. It's lost kind of. a ability to adapt the telecast itself to the modern era. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with someone that we've worked with in the past who was involved in writing the Oscars over a number of years. And I would always say to him, like, why is this so unfixable? Like, I'm not that smart, but I look at the telecast and it seems like we could really make something much more streamlined and fun that actually I would want to watch at Mm -hmm. home. And he said, you know, you just – you can't change the categories that are a part of the main telecast because the academy is made up of people who work in all of these various industries. And so to say – You know, how about we just don't do sound effects editing on the main telecast? Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. Jason, on behalf of all sound professionals out there, I want to apologize for interrupting your enjoyment of the broadcast with recognition for our little category. Sound is 50% of the movie going experience since George Lucas.
1: Would cause such a kerfuffle within the Academy. Although there are a lot of people who are like already want more categories. And I just realized I I just pissed off our engineer, Matt. Yeah, Matt's going to
0: love (laughs) this. you know... Who needs, why recognize the engineers? What do they do? You know what I'm saying? All due respect to sound engineers, love them, need them, rely on right. them.
1: Matt's going to make me sound like shit in this episode.
2: <laughs> and I totally get it.
0: However, sorry, Matt. Yeah. I want to watch acting awards. I want to watch directing awards. I would rather watch best comedy if they're, if they're not going to simply honor movies that are comedies mm-hmm. because somehow that's not serious enough to win best picture. Then fine. Create a whole new category- and give out an Oscar for it, you know, and give out Oscars for actors in comedies or musicals mm-hmm. uh, instead of like only dramatic movies are deserving of awards and nominations. So, but you can't do this stuff. You simply can't fix it. And so since you can't fix it, it's dying on the vine and mm-hmm. the telecast is going to continue to leak viewers. Um, and now I guess they're talking about let's go with no hosts. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe, I yeah. don't know.
1: Anyway, on to today's movie. Well, this is like the unofficial kickoff of Oscar season because our movie this week, to my mind, is the first in our line of heavy hitter contenders for this year's Oscars. I mean, the Oscar nominations haven't come
0: out yet, but it has cleaned up a lot of SAG Award nominations, Critics' Choice, whatever that is. Is that a thing? Critics' Choice
1: Awards? Um, I guess I mean you
0: know it Chris must has never be. heard of it, so um, and of course Golden Globes. All three leads have really been
1: racking up nominations. There's a long list, thank you, Wikipedia, of all of the accolades. Uh, the AACTA International Awards, Best Direction, Best Screenplay, Best Lead Actress, African American Film Critics Association, uh, one no of the awards. top 10 films, eighth place <laughs> of the top 10 films, American Film Institute, British Film Institute, British Independent Film Awards. Uh, camera image, Ch- Cher Cherie. Oh, I don't Cher know that- Cherie. Is it going to win the Cher Cherie? I don't I think that might be no. a pornography thing. Uh, Chicago Film Critics Association. Chris oh, has a few that. browser windows open. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think the point, Chris, that you're making is many, it's many gotten awards. a lot of awards. It's gotten, yes. and both, uh, very often for best director, best screenplay, and the three, lead, three lead, actresses. lead actresses. Talk about burying the lead. We haven't even really mentioned
0: which movie we're talking oh, about. Oh, duh. <laughs> um, it is the favorite, the Yorgos Lanthimos, did I say that correctly? I'd say so, but then I also have never heard anybody say it, so... Well, you've heard me say it. Yorgos yeah. Lanthimos, film starring... Emma Stone. Rachel Weisz,
1: and in a revelatory performance, uh, the future Queen of England, sort of, and Olivia- the former Queen
0: Mother of England. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, she's played both. Wow,
1: that's like some Terminator Olivia Colman. type stuff. Olivia Colman.
0: Most of my comments about this movie are going to be confined to Olivia Coleman's performance. I want to read just one comment, which I thought captured uh, my thoughts about the movie Mm -hmm. succinctly, um, which is from the Globe and Mail, which I think is a Toronto newspaper, right? Could be. It's Coleman who steals the film from everyone, Lanthimos included. And I thought that was a really sort of insightful comment because- of all the things that the movie is about and is trying to be about, I thought her performance was the thing at the center of it that actually was moving and hilarious and outrageous and had real heart and substance to it. And you know what? I got to plug – I got to be like plugged into the heart of something, even a biting social satire mm-hmm. and a comedy. Um,
1: there wasn't a lot to plug into with this movie outside of her performance for me. I have to say, I although I agree with most of what you said, I I did plug into it partially because I came in liking Yorgos Lanthimos, having seen his other movies before. And, you know, with films specifically, I do like the way the story is told. Like that, to me, is something that does bring me into it as much as the performances. And I, I think this is a fascinating to see how his style has evolved to this stunning overlap between the kind of story that he was telling and the way that he told it. All three of the main women, as well as everybody else, uh, top to bottom, did a fantastic job living in this, this strange, beautiful, and very deliberate world. And it culminated in, I think, ultimately, there are some elements of the theme which You've seen before and are unsurprising, and yet he found surprising wrinkles to it. And I think ultimately the final scene was such a um, an incredibly beautiful filmic expression that I found incredibly sad and moving, both uh, for the characters themselves, but also just like as a piece of film, uh, I thought was uh, just was stunning. It was. I'm getting chills when you're describing it. The final scene, Emma Stone's
0: character— starting out by massaging her leg, although Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we're led to
1: believe it becomes a little bit more of an erotic gesture than Mm -hmm. that. Was that your takeaway? It was certainly shot into it in a way to imply that. There was the consciousness of Abigail's growing consciousness of having sort of gotten what she wanted, but what that actually means and the thing that it has and will be stunting her and having to reconcile herself for being in it. And at the same time, the queen's consciousness of kind of the symbolism as well. It was the elements of power and uh, submission. You know,
0: for me, um, the only two Yorgos Lanthimos, now that I can say the the names, I'm going to just, Yorgos Lanthimos (laughs) um, films I've seen are The Lobster and this. Yes. Um, I'd say his two best. I enjoyed The Lobster more than I enjoyed watching this movie, but there's a separation the three main characters in The Favourite, it's it's watching three great actors um, tear into amazing roles. However, the surrounding stuff of the film, the environment, I thought it was kind of overstuffed given the era and given the set decoration and given the... Um, the theme of, you know, be, be careful what you wish for, or, you know, would you rather choose the cottage of contentment or the castle of cold splendor? As my friend Raph would always say. it's wow. um, a poetic friend you got yeah, there. Yeah, he always said that. Well, he is a poet. Um, so the lobster was set in a believable future that is incredibly grounded in the present and used sparingly futuristic details the world that we're plopped down in in the lobster and sort of how we learn about what's happening to these newly single people and the choices that they must make in order to continue living or be turned into the animal of their choice. I just thought that was a more fully realized world for me. Whereas with this story, you know, I've seen this so many times. I mean, this is not, this is like well-trodden ground in terms of, oh, the royals are mad. There's, There's innumerable versions of that. But the performances for me, are the purpose for the movie, the movie itself as a statement, it didn't have the emotional resonance that I had watching The Lobster. You know, in a movie that has less going on, the little details mean a lot. Mm -hmm. This movie is so overstuffed that it's hard to pick up on the little details outside of the performances.
1: You know, you had talked about it being kind of well-trodden territory, and I think that that's true to a certain extent, and what amazed me— and. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I never thought I would do this, but I have to admit, I thought A.O. Scott uh was a little bit wrong in his assessment. I uh indeed I have an A.O. Scott quote on my notes. Let's so, see what let's well, see if, so here's the maybe thing we that, chose the same one. Here's the thing that I think that when you say it's well-trodden territory, and what I think that A.O. Scott also talked about, particularly with the character of Abigail as played by Emma Stone, there have been a lot, I think, of stories where, you know, there's the the court and somebody shows up from the past taking advantage of this thing. And it turns out that they are even more dastardly than the other, or there's the element of the power exchange has been done. What I found most interesting about her performance, her character, and what I think did work about it for me... These women are changed and ruined by the system around them, which is why the overstuffedness worked for me. Because it was about this decadent world where they had to sort of fit their ambition and their desires into. Abigail, I don't think she shows up as scheming. You know, she had lived a very difficult life, but I think she showed up sort of hoping for the best and and just glad to get off the street and not have to fight off rapists every night and not have to beg for food. And I think she, if things had worked out slightly differently, she might have been kind of content to rise within the ranks of the servants. What she got was an opportunity uh, in within this corrupt system to go even higher, and she gets kind of drunk with power, and she gets turned into a sort of worse person. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series, Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy. But if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks, Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass with stealing with twisted tees. Compared to a film like The Lobster,
0: which is so original and so out of left field and so fully realized as something totally new. Okay, so that's like a setup that I haven't seen before in a movie. And the way in which it's manifested and the way in which the information is meted out to me as a viewer means I was in the hands of someone with full command of how to put on screen something wholly unique and very Mm -hmm. different. And I guess in this movie, I actually thought that the favorite might have benefited a little bit from some of the handholding that the lobster did in terms of using a voiceover to great effect. So the lobster if you recall has a little bit of a voiceover at the beginning that, beginning that turns out to be from throughout Rachel the whole Weiss. movie. Throughout the whole movie, but it comes in at very specific moments and it gives us information that we don't otherwise have. But then it's also not just a handholding voiceover because it turns out it's it's a it's a diary that was kept by Rachel Weiss's character that gets found by the leader of the loners and I thought in this movie, even though I'm on f- much much more familiar ground in the setting of the court, a little bit of that would have helped a little bit because I think the, the kind of – a lot of the commentary on the power dynamics that you're talking about were manifest through use of his camera lens choices mm-hmm. and his – and his turns, which are sort of disorienting and provide distortion over what you're seeing. So it's. I think it's just a personal choice. It's mm-hmm. just that I, I understand um, this is a great breakthrough of a real like auteur director who is now making something. I guess it's a c- commercial success too. I'm curious to know if it's a commercial success. It's certainly a yeah. critical success. It's so great that this guy is working in movies and making original movies yeah. like this. Um, but the lobster captured my heart. I think about it so much. I haven't really thought about this movie since I saw it other than thinking like, wow, Olivia Colman is
1: so fucking good. Well, I just rewatched The Lobster last night and I loved it even more a second time. But the thing that I did love about it was the coldness of the way that it was hmm. shot and the sort of strange affect that a lot of the characters had, including both Olivia Colman and Colin Farrell, who's somebody I could take or leave. It was great. He has, the, the, But it's this strange sort of dreamlike world that all of these characters inhabit. That put me... A little bit more distanced from connecting with them as characters, which made the ending (spoiler) uh, that much more surprising when he is about to poke his eyes out. Too. Or not? I guess or not. But to me, it, it just really felt like it was about to happen. Um, but yeah, you're right. We don't. We don't, but see we it don't happen. know. Um, but it's it's just funny that gets, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a taste thing. But I, to me, I found because the style of the acting in The Favorite. Everybody was much closer to kind of realism, uh, as a well, except for the 2018 dance moves going on in the dance sequence or eh. the
0: use of 2018 uh, youth expressions peppered through the dialogue. Yeah. I mean, they definitely I, made some. Choices I didn't to mean kinda- that it
1: was like exactly uh, historically accurate. Yeah, but it was more like realism and natural. Like it was people speaking, not in this sort of strangely heightened yes. and stylized uh, robotic affect, which was a big part of. Uh, the Lobster, which is something, again, I love. I don't mean that yeah. negative. Was, I think because of that, I got more into the action as opposed to watching something that felt more like a storybook, which is, a, which is, uh, I think, what the voiceover and the sort of distanced thing about this strange, different world that The Lobster created uh, uh, did for me.
0: Let's play a clip from The Favourite. At this point in the film, we know that Vice has insinuated herself into both the court and the Queen's alternately fragile and steely psychology through manipulation.
2: I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it. About your rooms. Thank you. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me. Look at me. How dare you? Close your eyes.
0: Such a great scene. Such a great scene. So good. Here's another great point that I love about the movie. There's a guy uh, named Paul Swain who is in this movie in the very first scene in the movie. This is one of the things I love about actors. I love this when you think about people that do embarrassing commercials, for example. Yes. Like if you're on um, one of my favorite, you know, I talk a lot about commercials because I watch a lot of television and I love to contemplate why certain commercials exist. There was a commercial last year for a laxative for people who are on opiates. Have you seen this commercial? It's amazing. There's like Uh, a whole thing. What were they advertising that on? During like football games and stuff. (laughs) And it's like, there's an invented term for basically- Like, 2018 America, when, you know, millions of people are addicted to opiate prescription painkillers over-prescribed to them by doctors, apparently it causes constipation. And rather than, heaven forbid, let's not, like, stop Stop prescribing, prescribing. let's create new medicines that soften the stools of the people we're prescribing the pills to. So there's a whole series of commercials where a guy is suffering, and I wish I could remember, the name. it has, like, a little clever acronym, like... um, opiate-controlled concussive stool syndrome or something. So anyway, so the actor that's in that commercial, I'm thinking like, that's like, oh, what commercials have you done? Well, you know, I was in the opiate stool softener commercial. Paul Swain is in the credits, the IMDb full cast and crew credits of The Favorite, and his role is wanking man. And he's the one who begins masturbating in the carriage uh, while sitting across from Abigail, Emma Stone's character. And I just love thinking, and Paul Swain has no other credits on his IMDb page. <laughs> oh, really? And so I love thinking <laughs> about Paul Swain <laughs> over the holiday season when everybody is talking about the favorite. And Paul Swain no doubt finds himself at some country house weekend getaway in, a, in in the in the Cotswolds in the English countryside. And over a glass of champagne in front of a roaring fire, one guest turns to Paul Swain and says, and what do you do? And Paul says, "Oh, I'm an actor. Oh, have you been anything I would have seen? Well, yes, I'm actually in the favorite. Oh, really? Who were you? Oh, I was the guy masturbating." End conversation. You know,
1: they—you know—they could get buttoned with. Hey, congratulate! I remember you. <laughs> I mean, it's just like. See to me when I see that talk kind about of a I, thankless role. I, don't, I mean, I'm. I don't know. <laughs> it like it's, it's a very pleasurable role. Do you think
0: it is to sit there and to be filmed like, okay, do it again. Now, I don't know in terms of acting. You can tell me if you're filming this scene and you're Paul Swain and you're in the carriage. Um, I guess if Emma Stone is a team player, she might be sitting across you yeah. even though she's not in the shot. You know, sometimes they do that yeah. with their dialogue. Yep. I don't know if she's sitting across from him. If I was him, I'd probably prefer she's not sitting across from me. Do you think that he actually – reaches into his trousers and grasps his member for Verisimilitude
1: or do you think that he does not do that I think he probably does really yeah and I think but I think it's also done you know the director talks it through there are other people on set and Paul Swain's like I got this you know yeah, there was my that, first rodeo Yorgos <laughs> uh, his IMDB page says different but <laughs> he's like no no don't worry this I think there's is a been, lot of masturbation been, in the Yorgos movies, I've
0: been wanking by the way. a lot you yeah. know. I mean, in the in the lobster, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking, brilliantly hilarious scenes <laughs> is when John C. Riley is approached by Olivia Coleman at breakfast, and all the tables are set up because everyone's single, so they all have their individual breakfast table. And they put a toaster down. They slam a toaster in front of John C. Riley and in front of everyone, she says,
2: "I imagine you know that masturbation is not permitted in the rooms or any other area of the hotel. yes? And yet it has been brought to my attention that you continue to do it. Were you looking at a photograph while you were masturbating? Yes. What did the photograph show? A naked woman on a horse in the country. If I were in your shoes, I would not be ogling the naked woman, but the horse. I'm sure that horse was once a weak and cowardly man, just like you. This is not necessary, please. It was an accident. I just got carried away. This is not necessary. Please, place your hand in the hospital. This could be a warning.
1: Yorgos, I guess, loves a good wanking joke. Well, um, yeah, sex in his movies is a little bit weird. There's yes. a um, a part in Killing of a Sacred Deer where somebody does something for somebody else with the implication of sex as a payoff, and all she ends up doing is giving him a handjob in a car. Like, I was like, come on, you guys are you're adults, not not high schoolers. Well, and there's a handjob. Hand
0: Emma Stone gives. Um yeah. gives it's, her both yes. a hand job and also her a, um, husband on their wedding night. While and, she's thinking about how that's she'll right. survive. And also
1: in um uh in the lobster um cuz I only remember the two two times and they sort of echo of arousing uh, Colin Farrell's character but then just sort of like yes. leaving well, it. Well that's un- to,
0: that's to keep them that's to uh, keep them desperate. Well to titillate them and to remind them of the pleasures of uh, female
1: accompaniment so that they can, so that they go out yes. and, and form pairs. I don't have a wanking man in my uh, IMDb page, but I was on an episode of The Good Wife. Right, so I got two Wait, things. Wait, are you going to say that you had a role where you had to masturbate? No. <laughs> when you said like actors have to do sort of embarrassing yes. things. There was a woman that I knew who, was, who did a commercial for a um, STD, Cream, right? And she was just like, oh, "I just, I'm just not going to be able to do commercials for about three or four years because that's, that's- all anybody's going to think of." My own thing when I did an episode of The Good Wife, where I was the their client in a in a case, and the case was I had to be a grown man whose acne medication had made him impotent. So, uh, so that's what, what did you do? Well, I
0: mean, oh, what well, I did was is a lawsuit case. or It was a did, lawsuit case. Oh, I didn't drive yeah, I you didn't, into <laughs> a
1: murderous rage. It wasn't like the Twinkie defense. No, no. So you're this guy who has acne at the age of uh, 40, you know, and and who is now rendered impotent because he has a 16-year-old's uh, disease. If uh, I can live it down, so can Paul Swain. Well,
0: was- do you think that Paul Swain is perhaps not even an actor in the sense—like, I'm being I'm being serious right now. Is it is it a scene that an actor wouldn't want to do as a starting out actor because it doesn't I mean, he he handles the scene with aplomb
1: and it's yeah. very funny and he's fully committed. Look, um, it's very possible that he was an extra, perhaps, that- um, Was caught masturbating and Norgo well, not- <laughs> said, you know what? I can use that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, or I guess I was saying, that an extra that they sort of got the idea while filming Maybe. and they were like, ah, we need to, you know what? You. And he gets <laughs> sort of a promotion from extra to now featured player. He also could be a young... He could have come to acting later in life. You know, anything is anything is possible. What was the A.O. Scott quote that you thought was apropos? Oh, well, the thing... Let's you know, trade A.O. Scott quotes. Uh, Abigail plays the role of wide-eyed ingenue, a masquerade that conceals formidable skills in psychological and physical combat. My quibble has to do with A, Abigail plays the role of a wide-eyed ingenue, a masquerade, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I really don't think that it's a masquerade. That I think she does come in... Again, okay, hopeful. We well, yes. the, like, I understand you're asking. That, well, that's know, the quibble I know, that I hang, have.
0: You hang such importance on such a, sim,
1: a small character detail because what's the big, what's the, the whole, big whole point deal of dramatic that? movement and change is that somebody yeah. changes. It's even okay. uh, a little bit sadder than that because you know you take every step you take down any kind of tragic road, you keep thinking you can come back, and that's why I thought that image was so. Uh, so sad because sure. ultimately, in the end, she found her place where she simply
0: can't. I here's the A.O. Scott quote that jumped out at me, and I, I really agreed with this in watching this movie. A sentimental soul, he wrote, might wish for a glimpse of something else. And I think he's speaking to yes, there's a certain bleakness in all of these films. The the Yorgos sort of uh, oeuvre seems to be a comic. I don't I don't find it bleak. Bleak yeah. is like a different type of movie to me. These aren't bleak per se, although they have a it's more of a dark humor, you mm-hmm. know, a black humor than it is a bleakness. It's not like I'm watching some movie that just rips your soul out and leaves it trot upon the floor. To me, the lobster was so moving. It was, mm-hmm. I, I was profoundly moved, even as I was laughing at the bleak tone and the, the dry and the dark sardonic wit. I was moved, and I was left moved uh, through the final shot. And I was moved ultimately in the favorite as well but really only by Olivia Mm Colman. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think that quote, I think what A.O. Scott was talking about was, yes, um, there's the journey that you talk about in the Abigail character. Um, For me, it's Olivia Colman, it's Rachel Weiss, and then it's Emma Stone in terms of the three performances and the nuances and the subtleties of what was most interesting to me. I thought Rachel Weiss, who suffers the greatest fall in, in the film, into an almost com- – I mean, <laughs> the, being dragged by the horse was just hilarious. Yeah. Uh, being trapped in a brothel, um, you know, her her journey and her skill as an actor is so greatly deployed here that um, Emma Stone, by comparison, I've noticed in some of the reviews, she doesn't get beaten up a little bit, but she certainly gets kind of put into – Third place in terms of the hierarchy that's going to inevitably. Happen whenever you're looking
1: at three great roles yeah. in a movie.
0: Now they're all nominated. So, yeah, um, you know, everyone's going to come out. But fine. I'm with you. And I, and
1: I don't mean to, because I, I also think Rachel Weiss's character and, and her fall. Rachel Weiss, it's pronounced Rachel Weiss, forgive me. Her, her character and her, the thing that I thought there was something that a lesser director would not have given her the humanity that she had. So that, like, the last scene that she is in when she and uh, her husband, played by Mark Gaddis. Great. Are you a uh, Sherlock guy? Love Sherlock. So it was great to Mike see Croft, him. Croft Holmes. Um, His greatest role, I think. And there, the fact that she never betrays him, I mean, she betrays him in the sense that she has a girlfriend, but like <laughs> she is fighting to, re, to protect him. Well, she did embezzle the, money to cause him to be kicked out of. Isn't the embezzlement of the money true? Oh, see, I, I, I guess I didn't think that it was.
0: Well, no, I take it back. Because when she sees the soldiers arriving after the scene that precedes that Mm -hmm. is Olivia Coleman saying, you know, we're kicking them out and she's banished and she sees the soldiers arriving and she immediately says, you know, I think it's time to leave. I think we should go to the the South of France or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've grown tired of England. I've grown tired of England. So it seems to me like the, I thought the financial
1: accusation that Abigail made was perhaps true. Whether it was true or not, you see those – she knows what it means when soldiers are coming like that towards your house. And the fact – her saying, you know what? I've suddenly grown weary of England to her husband who she had not abandoned throughout the whole movie. A lot of the problems come because of the difference between how to handle this war. And I think whatever she feels about the war and about the French, um, she's not abandoning him. Like that's what I – I took from it, sure. and the very fact that they they are sort of staying together was a type of humanity that, again, if she were just the sort of um, dangerous liaison type, um, cutthroat, I don't think that character would have been been the same. And so she sees the the horses coming; she knows they're in trouble. And the fact that she says, "I've grown tired of England," to me, this this is not a bleak assessment of humanity, but about people who are. Uh, do what they do to survive, including reframing this horrible situation of um, you know what maybe we should leave.. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was both funny and and really, really telling. I, I thought you know, in the I think that the
0: performances kind of were ultimately enough for me in watching the movie. Um, it's just that Olivia Coleman alone is the character that, to me, has an emotional arc where everyone else in the movie is so self-obsessed as to really just ultimately be rendered a little cold and two-dimensional to me. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. I think she's the only real, and this is a testament to her, just the amazing power of her as an actor, even just watching that clip, just watching her in that scene with her face alone. I mean, she is a consummate master actor. Incredible. Like there are depths to her performance that merit re-watching this
1: over and over again. You know, and I thought the same with, um, with The Lobster. You know, because when you had mentioned that with she her? was in the, or, with her, like yeah. again, that is much she's less not of center a, stage. She's that, not yes, center but stage.
0: She's so perfectly cast. But
1: what <laughs> she she makes the most of that
0: part, not in a showy way. No, there's one hilarious quote I have to read you. Uh, you know how Rotten Tomatoes has like has like I guess they have just just people who review movies on the site, and then I guess if you re- re- if your reviews get thumbs up enough in a 2018 social media sense, you become a like master reviewer or something. I don't know what they call it. Anyway, this is not a professional reviewer, but I thought this this hit it on the nose so well. This is from Glenn Gaylord on Rotten Tomatoes. He writes, quote, "'Leave it to director Yorgos Lanthimos "'and writers Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara "'to turn this genre on its ears "'and produce an outrageous, so, so wrong, "'scabrous piece of agitprop cinema "'which feels like Barry Lyndon threw up all over Bound, "'took a dump on All About Eve,' whilst deleting every download of Down Abbey and peeing on Dangerous Liaisons. Wow. Yeah. I mean, somebody, could you say that any better?
1: That is well put. That is so this that's, movie. That's a rave, right? That is a <laughs> rave. That is a rave. Um, no, I like that. I think that's
0: great. Did you know that Rachel Weiss can be seen in an audience shot in the Brian Adams music video, There Will Never Be Another Tonight? No. I didn't think you did. Did you know that Rachel Weisz is one of six actresses to have won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for playing a character who is pregnant at some point during the film? And can you name the film not only for which she won the Best Supporting Actress trophy, but the other five Best Supporting Actress winners who portrayed characters
1: who were pregnant at some point during the film? Jason, not only can I not answer your question, I can't even understand your question. (laughs) Well, you're
0: big on my setups and
1: pronunciation. No, no, it's a a very particular uh, award. That's all that I am Best Supporting Actress? For playing a pregnant, Best Supporting Actress playing a pregnant woman in a particular type of film?
0: Yeah, well, so you can't name any others. No. I'm, I'm probably the only person who cares about this arcane Best Supporting Actress for for, a character for characters who's who who is pregnant at some point just but here, here are your yes. six winners okay Rachel Weiss won for a fantastic film which I would like to which I'm going to rave about later Constant Gardner 2005 The others are Mary Astor for The Great Life in 1941 Kim Hunter for A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951 uh-huh. Mary Steenburgen for Melvin and Howard 1980 great movie uh, and what is Melvin just died he's in his obit
1: is in the New York Times today who played who played Melvin Who played Melvin? I'm sorry. Melvin and Howard is the name of the film? You never heard of Melvin and Howard? No. (laughs) Wow.
0: Okay. Brenda Fricker for My Left Foot, 1989. Another great film. Have you seen that? I haven't.
1: And Jennifer Hudson for Dreamgirls, 2006. That's really surprising to me, though, that that's that few – characters uh, have been pregnant who at were, some point were pregnant and got got nominated yeah, well
0: six through Oscar history. There
1: you that go. That is that was what <clears>
0: surprised <throat> me. Um wow you should really see Melvin and Howard I think you'd really like it. I was about to say what um
1: what is it? Well
0: Melvin, Melvin is- and Howard is a story of a either a con artist or a unfairly beleaguered and hounded Ne'er do well, kind of sad sack character who claims that he gave Howard Hughes late in life a ride and that Howard Hughes signed over a massive amount of his estate to him. Uh And then, you know, was I think the will was proven to be a forgery and it wasn't his Howard Hughes' signature. But they made a very affecting uh, film called Melvin and Howard with Jason Robards. And I think one of his, I don't know if it was his last role. Um, but one of Jason Robards is maybe last roles. Um, and Paul Lamatt, who's just a great actor from the seventies and eighties, uh-huh. um, plays the Melvin Dumar character. Um, and it's directed by Jonathan Demme. It's a, it's a really great, I great 1980 film that I highly recommend.
1: Never, never even heard of it. You never heard of it. No, but you know, mentioning, um, the Howard Hughes can, is it, Based on a true story at all, do you yeah. yeah, it's it is based, based on...
0: well, Melvin Dumar says it's a true story, but that's sort of
1: the whole point of the Melvin well, Dumar I mean, but Melvin story. Dumar was, was- He was a real was person. He was a real person. He just died. His obit is in the New York Times today. That's who you're- Okay, because also, Clifford Irving- Yes, Have d- d- you ever Irving. heard of Clifford Irving and his hoax with yes. uh, attempting to pass off Howard Hughes' uh, fake autobiography? Correct. I read uh, a book that Clifford Irving ghost wrote. It's purporting to support his, his own faked- Book? So there's uh, <laughs> uh, an genius. Orson
0: Welles movie called yes. F for Fake. F for Fake, I've seen it,
1: No, because yes. you've seen it. So yeah. Elmere and Clifford Irving, are. Yes. They're, he's supposedly doing a documentary about Elmere, who was the greatest art forger of the 20th century. Right. The greatest art forger in the 20th century was working on an autobiography, and the person that was ghostwriting it or helping him write it <laughs> was the guy yes. who had tried to do the, the layers, Howard Hughes hoax. The, the, the layers was field. was yeah. amazing of it. Anyway, going back to uh,
0: Olivia Coleman. Yes. Um, I want to play another clip for you because my first experience of Olivia Coleman as an actor was in Broadchurch, which is I mentioned in the last podcast
1: that oh, right. uh, Prime That's Suspect Grace was Point. my Grace Point. The thing
0: that yes. led to the brilliance, that is Grace Point. Yes, Grace Point. So we have a bit of a joke around these parts because one of our colleagues that we work with, uh, last year or so, I became obsessed with Broadchurch, which I think has three seasons, which I devoured in – a week or something. I mean, it just, I i rarely went as deep into staying up until four or five o'clock in the morning, binging a series as I did on Broadchurch. And I came in to the office and was telling everyone how, how brilliant and how great it was. Um, one of our colleagues, Brian said, no, but I seen Grace Point, which I didn't even know existed. And I was so destroyed to realize that of course, American TV had made a lame version of something that was so brilliant, so great on its own. I lost a little respect for David Tennant, who for some reason, I guess money is a good enough reason to take any job, so far yeah. be it from me. But for some reason, after going through what must have been a <laughs> excruciating experience as an actor playing this incredibly ripped apart character over three seasons of brutally viscerating television to then sign up to do it all over again uh, in America. Yeah. Uh, that's with the a ol- different accent. With right? different he has a different, right? Oh, he I, I don't know if he does a different accent, or maybe he's like the lone Brit who comes okay. to, because even in Broadchurch, he sort of shows up at the station as an outsider Got it. in his own country. I don't know if they, I've I, I purposely never seen even a poster for whatever it's called. Right. I don't even speak its name. That is a fantastic Olivia Coleman performance. And I'm going to play a clip now where um, David Tennant is her boss who has been given the job she wanted in the, in the police station. And he's trying to convince her to use her own child as bait in an
1: investigation. Reconstruction Thursday night, one week on your boy, Tom, you should do it.
2: Well, no, I don't want him to. No, he's the best choice. Did you not hear what I just said? He's just lost his best friend that could traumatise him for life. Well, oh, maybe he should be allowed to decide. No, that. I'm his mum. I decide. Oh, so your commitment to this investigation stops outside these doors? With respect, sir. Move away from me now, or I will piss in a cup and throw it at you. Talk to... It's your husband's name, Joe. Talk to him about it. And Tom. You're invited for dinner. What? Pick a night. At your house? Why? Do you know many people here? Are you living off hotel food?
1: It's not a good idea.
2: Oh, please don't be an arsehole about it. Believe me, I don't really want to do it either, but it's what people do. Is it? Yes, they have their bosses around. We don't have to talk about work. What are we talking about? I don't know. Just say yes. Thank you. Bloody hell.
0: My wife said something last night about Olivia Colman I thought was so true. She's like, you know, it's just such a reminder of how in the UK they can reward an actor who probably in the States would not get a career off the ground just on the basis of not looking a certain way. And she's amazing. I mean, I can't wait for the crown season three, I think is where she takes over the role of the queen from Claire Foy. Um, You look at her IMDb page. I mean, my God, she's been working consistently on so many things and like really everyone in this movie. um, She's also going to be in Watership down, which I don't want to get into because it's
1: too hurtful. Because you love the book, or you I just love think the that book. the uh, I,
0: I love the it. book, and they released a horrible trailer that looks like it was animated on an
1: Atari sixteen hundred. Oh, I can't get cut. You gotta it. cut costs. Yeah, gotta cut somewhere. Um, First, you use a book in the public domain, then you use an old computer to animate it. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the Dirty Dozen meets the Fly with a little Spider Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters, and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them, as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Another thing
0: that, um, did
1: you see see Emma Stone in
0: Battle of the Sexes? I did not. That was really good. That's what somebody
1: was saying recently. Yeah, it's
0: surprisingly good. It was on, I, I heard someone say... It was like a movie that came out and you're kind of like, what? Like, it just felt sort of out of place. And it's about the famous tennis match, which occurred between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. uh, Played by Steve Carell. And um, it just had one of those kind of, huh? Because it just seemed like a weird career choice. And it seemed, and she was playing sort of opposite what you think of when you think of Emma Stone in a way. And, um, but it was a really, really
1: watchable, well-done movie. Yeah. And which maybe, you know, maybe that was part of the choice. You know, she is very, you know, she's very successful and at some point be like, I want to be seen as sort of a little bit more than, than um, just a young ingenious. Well, young I think she's lady. established.
0: I mean, my God, she's already won an Academy Award. She's been in a variety I'm of saying, I think Battle of the sex oh, before that. Oh, it was just two years ago. Or yeah. Even, yeah. Wasn't
1: that before La La Land? Yeah, maybe the year before or maybe even the same year. I don't but know. that's what I mean. Like yeah. when you say it's a strange career choice, like I can see somebody who had already established herself in so many ways wanting to take something a little bit more challenging and, uh, and that you wouldn't necessarily expect.
0: Uh, you know, two Academy Award, two Best Supporting Actress Academy
1: Award winners in The Favorite,
0: in Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. Yes.
1: One other thing, just a battle of the sexes. What's, a thing that seems strange about that was, I guess I knew nothing about that. Mm-hmm. Did not realize that it was such a big cultural moment. And around the time just before the movie came out, there were two Productions of plays. One that was in New York, oh, right? And then there was one yeah. that I was auditioning for that was going to be in Texas, I think, or something like that. Uh, and so, in order to, I read the play and also was reading a little bit about it, and it did seem like a fascinating story. I'm actually sorry that I had missed. I mean, I'm, was the play about Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs? Yeah. Oh, it was. And it was a sort of, it was an, a very arty thing. It was about about how no. in, in theater it was going to be. <laughs> it was going to be like chore. The whole thing was choreographed like to be exactly all of the moves that they made in the thing and it was mm. going to be about I guess the sort of social significance of it more okay. so than them but um, so you're saying
0: they didn't do it or you just didn't get the part I didn't get the part oh, I didn't well. get the part you, you should have a um, we should have a recurring segment called I didn't get the part <laughs> which would be which <laughs> would be, be too be long each each episode you tell us one story of a particular thing that you went and auditioned for and every story ends and I didn't I didn't and get, I I get I the part, part. <laughs> yeah. I think well, the viewers have- out there if you want to hear that segment please let us know I think if one of you writes in and says, I Th- definitely want n- to hear that, that would be <laughs> enough. And it definitely won't be me under a pseudonym submitting an email and asking for that
1: <laughs> We've got this letter from uh,
0: Kason Gilo. <laughs> you, you may have seen me being thirsty to IMDB on Twitter because they just announced today that IMDB is creating original content. And they released an initial slate of a couple series that they're doing. And one of the series is called something like... Um, It's basically their version of I Didn't Get It. It's like comics and writers and celebrities talking about projects that didn't go forward.
1: That sounds fantastic. Right,
0: And then another one is something else. And so I thirstily tweeted at IMDb and said, gee, sounds like they need a podcast. If only there was one out there that was really on theme for the IMDb brand. So expect the cease and desist letter forthcoming. (laughs) Either a a contract or or a cease and desist letter. I don't know either one or the other. I also love Nicholas Holt in this movie. I, I really like him as an actor, and I was glad to see him again. Um, what have you seen him in that you, that you liked? Because oh, I know, I liked him in Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road. One of the best I, experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. I, that is a great movie. Um, but, of course, he's the kid from About a Boy. Oh. Uh,
1: I haven't seen it.
0: I know it. I, I'm trying to help you by not continuing to hammer the Chris hasn't seen movies thing. But you also have to help me a little too. You have to help yourself. This is like a thing, you know. I'm not gonna see. You know, about like Jerry. Ma- I think it's the 30, <laughs> Jerry, 35th, an- 30, 35th anniversary of Jerry Maguire, 35th anniversary of 25th an- 1996. However long yeah. that was. <laughs> How long is that? 22 years. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got it right yeah, the first yeah.
1: time. Well, I mean, you first said 25, but <laughs> 36, 25, 22. Um, <laughs> he also was in uh, one of the X- the crappy X Men movie. He was, uh, and I think that's why I probably I was like, yeah, I thought he was Did quite not- good in this in this he was great. Yeah. I love he's, how he's all the
0: male characters are bewigged and made up in the most ridiculous fashion and are, you know, it's kind of flips the convention of the female characters being, you know, meticulously painted and bewigged and it's really yeah. the the men who walk around like a bunch of foppish fools in this movie which
1: I thought was great. And sort are sort of ineffectual and decadent. Absolutely On top of that. Yes. Uh,
0: I I have a lot of clips in this episode, just because there's so many great ones that I wanted to just play. Fantastic. I wanted this one is already queued up. We're not going to have any technical difficulties. I wanted to play a clip from The Lobster. This is a scene that describes the secret body language that Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz's characters develop because flirting or having any type of physical intimacy or love is punishable by the red kiss. Which is the slicing of lips that, that and are then mashed forcing together, and forcing, to forcing them to heal and forcing them to kiss. And so, since these two, since these two characters fall in love yeah. or what feels to them like love, there's no way for them to express it in and amongst the group of loners that they've fallen in with in the woods. And in this scene, Rachel Weiss is describing the physical language that they developed to communicate their love for each other.
2: We've developed a code so that we can communicate with each other, even in front of the others, without them knowing what we are saying. When we turn our heads to the left, it means, I love you more than anything in the world. And when we turn our heads to the right, it means, watch out, we're in danger. We had to be very careful in the beginning not to mix up, I love you more than anything in the world with, watch out, we're in danger. When we raise our left arm, it means, I want to dance in your arms. When we make a fist and put it behind our backs, it means, let's fuck. The code grew and grew as time went by. And within a few weeks, we could talk about almost anything without even opening our mouths.
0: So good. (laughs) I thought the way that he developed sort of the comedy and the pathos... But then there's a scene later in the movie where he's communicating to her. We don't realize it. This is what's amazing about this guy as a filmmaker. It's a scene where Colin Farrell's character is explained to her that he's come up with a solution for the fact that they've lost the thing that connects them. Yeah. Because the leader of the loner group has had Rachel Weisz's character blinded under the guise of having her vision corrected. And throughout the whole movie, weird things that two people have in common, like I get nosebleeds, you get nosebleeds, is the is the linking device. And their linking device was uh, short sighted. They were short sightedness. And so, once the Rachel Vice character is blinded, there's this. They're fraught with peril that they no longer have this thing that connects them. And there's a scene in the woods where, using this language which she just walked through, he says like elbow, forehead, touch, eye roll right fist down and he's communicating to her that he's going to blind himself so that they have that in common. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't really know that yet until the scene pays off later. Um, I think, well, she kind of ends it and says like, are you willing, are you sure you're willing to do that for me? I think we kind of get the intimation of what's going on.
1: No, but I just remember that thing because being confused by it until they actually the knife.
0: Brilliant. Um, Rachel Weiss is so good and, you know, looking at her IMDb page, She's been good for so long. Yeah. Um, I mean, she has one of those careers where she's been in so many things that you could find a handful of examples of exemplary acting roles, and you can find a whole lot of movies that are probably just paying the bills or were interesting to her for one reason or another but didn't quite work. Um, But she's been good
1: for a long, long time. Years ago, a friend of mine had- been to London and came back raving about her, having seen her on stage in, uh, I believe it was uh, Design for Living. That was the first that I had ever ever heard from her. And she also was an, in, in an Inspector Morse episode.
0: Um, what about The Mummy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had been to Egypt very... very so you, weren't, you weren't open for a Hollywood bastardization? <laughs> no, Egypt, I was about to say quite the opposite. opposite. I, was up-
1: like, <laughs> I was all in. I was like, great, let's go see it. It looked like, you know, it was sort of a lesser Indiana Jones, Don't, but uh, yeah. it was still
0: okay. No, I didn't see The Mummy. Who's in that? Brendan Fraser and- uh, Uh, Brendan Fraser, uh, yeah. Rich Weiss. Nicholas Holt is great. Olivia, Olivia Coleman. I mean, I'm continuing to go down the rabbit hole. I'm going to give away, I'm going to give one of my, I'm going to give away one of
1: my- um, uh, Raves? One of my raves because- I mean, let's, should we just transition into that? Let's go. Rants and raves,
0: rants and raves. (laughs) This is the part we call rants and raves. Leave it in, Matt, leave it in. Matt's profession is the profession of learning to translate unintelligible thought farts from producers like us (laughs) who can't really express themselves in terms of what it is they want done in a cut or an audio edit and figuring that out and then figuring out how to do it. Yeah. And I can think of many comical moments in mixes uh, where you're saying something like, yeah, that section there – can it feel more like the room is bigger or like the conversation is taking place in a paper cup? And 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 a really good engineer like someone like Matt will never look at you with the incredulity that your ridiculous request requires. And instead we'll go like, yeah, let's figure that out. Yeah. And it probably wheels around his chair and goes like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let me and then like I think doesn't do anything on the board and turns around, how about this? Hits play and I go, yeah, that sounds so much better. So much Great. better. Great, okay, let's move on. Um, Yeah. Rants and raves.
1: You start, Chris. What's your first rave? Well, this will be sort of a holiday themed rave. My parents, my parents are lovely and wonderful people. And of late, they have had many reasons to demonstrate that. And uh, I do know that they listen. Uh, they I do. Get, I do get notes uh, at times. How, how have these notes not been read into the record? Well, some of them, I try to drop them in some. Those Because they're all like, you should
0: lose that co-host guy.
1: They're, they're, you know, like I said, I try to incorporate them in subtle ways. I know family My- tends
0: to view this as a solitary podcast, <laughs> more so than uh, And I just uh, left to comment on your sister's Facebook page today, which I don't know if she
1: responded to yet. Um, but I think you should bring forth some of the parental comments. I, I mentioned that... Somebody said we should be making a podcast for seventy-year-olds. That was my dad. That was idea. Your, <laughs>
0: It's not a terrible idea. I mean, it's not a terrible idea. But once we like, get the demographics in.
1: <laughs> we don't yet know what the demographics are when we get them in. He may true. be right. <laughs> anyway, I simply wanted to to rant about them because are you uh, ranting or raving? You said you were raving. It's Is a complicated it for relationship. It's always both for that's you. It's both. Yeah, I'm a complicated Interesting. guy. Interesting. No, I wanted to to rave about them. The holidays are coming up. As we get closer to it, I I have. I am appreciating just how much goes into it. And outside of that, there have been other friends and families who have been going through difficult times. And I think I have been so impressed and proud with the way that both of them uh, have handled those things. And I hope to retain some iota of that when I grow to be their age. Um, okay. So that's a rave. Definitely a
0: rave. It was meant to be. I don't know. What I that, making, I don't know. I'm going to choose to think of it as a moving paean to the love and respect you have for your parents.
1: Yes. That's
0: that's well-poured. how I'm going to take it. That's even better than a
1: rant. That's or, how I'm going to take a it. A rave. Okay. Now, do you have another rant? Should I do the rant? A rant? rant- well, <laughs> well, the rant, <laughs> this is definitely a rant, uh, but it is very short and uh, it was inspired by you. This is not a rant Uh-oh. against you, but you had posted- Sounds like I'm at home. Posted on Facebook, a story uh, about twenty finches that were recovered at the airport. Yes, at, at, um, customs JFK at customs. In Queens, tw- that were stuffed into like um, hair curlers. Hair curlers. Yeah. I guess I didn't read the article. I think it was too, it was for it was almost twelve I- importation it was almost of 12 illegal, illegal finches. Well, that's <laughs> so they they were about to, And they're like, look, customs, mortem control gotta you know you gotta stop animals from coming in because of disease. And this is not the first time this has happened. So I click through to read the other article. And they're like, it's not the. First. It's like read a bunch of articles, and could you please ask somebody and put in your article why are people smuggling <laughs> finches into? So they did not include the why. Nobody included the why, and and I read I think three or four articles. Like I don't know if this is to eat. If this is no. because they have totemic powers, is it to sell them as pets? It's a I mystery. I can think of. It's a mystery. Uh, but I do think that it's journalistic malpractice that the – that whoever the – Were the not in didn't the hair ask. curlers packed into a suitcase? The impression that I get, if, I, if I'm remembering right, that the – that they were in a carry-on. One of the articles that I did read seemed to make it sound like the person had them on him. Like was just physically carrying like a box with the finches and the hair curlers? The way they put it, it almost felt like in his jacket. It's oh. like a little tube. Wow. And, uh, You know, people smuggle weird shit. Yeah. Um but like drugs I get. Yeah. You drugs know, we car understand. parts, I get all those things. I can understand that you sell, but like what who maybe are you it was like uh,
0: maybe it's like an American Ortolan society. <laughs> right? Good for be. For the listeners who don't know that Ortolans are tiny French songbirds that are famously consumed under a napkin so as to hide the shame from God. I'm gonna start with a rant. Uh, this is another commercial that's been irking me. Um this is a K Jewelers commercial that's called Son's Permission. And the setup of the commercial is that a guy, and he's the he's the thing I have the issue with in the commercial, a guy seems to be proposing marriage. But only at the end of the commercial do we realize that what he's really doing is asking permission. Julie means more to me than anything. And I wanted to ask you, before I ask her, may I have your permission to marry her? Before I even
1: say anything, do you understand why I'm irked by that commercial? Um, I guess I can see possibilities. I'm going to guess it's because the very idea that you have to ask somebody else's permission for her hand no, is No, that, that doesn't promoted. bother me okay. at all.
0: That does not bother me at all. Then I guess i What bothers me is... No, sketchy arm tattoo guy. You may not marry my mom. Okay? No. The answer is no. Okay? Roll the fucking sleeve down because I can see the visible forearm (laughs) tattoo in the commercial. And that just to me sets up every reason why this guy should not be allowed to marry this adorable kid's mom. He is every bad stepdad that's about to happen. brought to life. And I don't know why for the life of me, they
1: cast this guy who is so sketchy looking. She's weird looking. He's unshaven. I don't like that jacket. I have to admit, I didn't notice the tattoos, but yeah. There's a visible tattoo.
0: His sleeve is rolled up, okay? (laughs) This may be coming out of my own personal experience, uh, as many many of my weird foibles do. (laughs) I love my dear departed mother, um, but I think even she would admit that in her life she did not have the best choice in dogs or men. (laughs) I think that's safe to say. (laughs) Uh, So it's probably coming from a sense of that. I had experiences like that in my life that were hilariously awkward and uncomfortable. So uh,
1: that ad drives me crazy every time (laughs) I see it. Uh, My second theory (laughs) was going to be that it's like, that you're going to be like, you know what, kids are too soft, you know, you oh, like, do the kid's permission. Enough yeah. with the kids dictating no, everything. <laughs> no, no, I have no, the kid
0: as, uh, I am the kid. That's why uh, yes. I feel for the kid. And it's horrible to be a young child sitting across the table from sketchy dude who's trying to like get with your mom. <laughs> and, and you have to be the vehicle for permission. You have to be the adult yeah. to say yay or nay in something that frankly you just wish wasn't happening at all. Yeah. So do you yeah. think that advertising is so subtle that they go, oh no, if we go with like bland, good looking guy over here- it's just like a momentarily cutesy commercial that everyone forgets. But if we go with like slightly sketchy guy with a hint of a tattoo, well, it, people are going to get freaked out. But I'm the only person that's freaked out by this.
1: So I, I mean, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I do think that everything about that is very deliberate. I'm sure they were like, roll up the thing, show the tattoo. We want to show the tattoo because I think that it's that it, look. It's a, it's a. I hate to say it. It's a generational thing as well, and they're thinking like, we don't want some. You know, oh, I mean, like they want cool millennials to buy their, yeah. The very fact that he's asking the kid is if, like, Mm. you know, again, as your experience can attest, it's not like this has never happened before. Yeah, but I think it's much more common now Mm -hmm. uh, that that a young woman brings. Children into a relationship, and I think that they're trying to be kind of now and contemporary. Again, he's unshaven. Uh, he actually looks, he looks like he has slept a while. He looks a, a little while, Yeah, he, he reminds me of the Travago guy. Remember when he came out and
0: that was such a big deal, and everyone was so freaked out by sketchy Travago guy. Yeah. And, and he kind of looked he- like he just woke
1: up on your couch after a night of partying. Yeah. They're making a very deliberate choice. Now, again, it may well backfire, and in at least one case, it certainly has. Well, there goes our K
0: Jewelers sponsorship opportunity. Jason's killed another one. Um, Okay, I have a couple of raves. Connected to what we were talking about, appreciating Olivia Coleman led me last night to start watching The Night Manager, which is Amazon's adaptation of the 1993 John Le Carre novel about a connected and charismatic arms dealer who's played by the essential and always fantastic Hugh Laurie, whose empire is infiltrated by Tom Hiddleston, who I'd never seen in anything other than the Loki Thor movies. And he's great in The Night Manager. Great. It also stars Elizabeth Debicki. Oh, wow. Who I was surprised to see as... And I laughed. It's another character with a domineering and evil mother who Elizabeth Vicky has several scenes crying to and with on the telephone. Uh, is it also uh, an Eastern
1: European domine- uh, domineering? And not, domine- no,
0: it's mother? not played quite like that. And The Night Manager also features a great star turn by uh, Bohemian Rhapsody co-star Tom Hollander. No okay. kidding. Um, and it's really good. It's, uh, I'm about three or four episodes in, um, and I'm a big John le Carré fan. So, as I said before, you know, I'm very, I'm careful about source material that I love. Like, I won't just watch anything if I hear that it's bad. I heard this was good. Um, and John LeCarré's sons are involved in a series of these adaptations. There's, there's another one that's either out
1: right now or coming out. Little that's Drummer Little Girl. Little Drummer Girl. Is that out already? That is, that it just came out. And I really like, that's uh, this Korean director that oh, right. I really like. And it's supposed to be Isn't that awesome? um, the guy who, is that the one who made the monster movie in the river? I think it's Park Chan-wook who
0: made uh, Old Boy. Who's the one that I'm talking about that made that fantastic movie about the monster
1: in the river? I think that's Bong Joon-ho. That is a great movie. That's the host.
0: That is so good.
1: I love that movie.
0: Um, Anyway, I highly recommend The Night Manager. Um, It's got a little, you know, there's some moments where you can kind of feel the lack of a budget in places. It doesn't quite have a cinematic feel at all times. But, man, Hugh Laurie is so good. And- Um, One of the great things about Le Carre novels is – People are good and evil, but he does such a great job with the bad guy, who in this case is played by Hugh Laurie, but he gives him such subtlety and layers of goodness as well. He's a good father. He's a loyal boyfriend to Elizabeth Debicki's character. I also wanted to rave about one other Le Carre adaptation, if I may, which I mentioned earlier, 2005's The Constant Gardener, co-starring Ray Fiennes, directed by Brazilian director Fernando Meirelles. Sure. Uh, this is the role for which Rachel Weiss won uh, Best Supporting Actress. And it's a story uh, like all the Le Carre's. It's an espionage story set in the world of big pharma and political corruption. And it features a great and tortured love story between Rachel Weiss and Ray Fiennes. And it also has one of the best and most haunting endings that I've always remembered in any movie. Fantastic. I want to see all of those. Um, and if you have nothing else, Chris— I have already queued up our next perfect outro. Fantastic. Which, when I said already queued up, is...
1: <laughs> what's the, uh, Margin
0: for error. Uh, yes, but this one requires that I... Oh, oh wait. Hold on. Not yet. <laughs> huh. You're going to fix this. You're going to fix that. Or not. Depending on what's funnier. Now I don't know if I have it queued up. Um, I was going to say thank you for listening and until next time what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang up this phone and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see I'm going to show them a world without you a world without rules and controls without borders or boundaries a world
2: where anything is possible where we go from there is a choice I leave to you